0: If you have your Bibles, please open to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we'll be reading, we're focusing on verses 5 through 11, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, what a text for us to consider for these few moments today. God, a text that exalts our Savior and His work and His worthiness in such a powerful and special way. And Father, we just come uh, as a people who are needy. We need the help of your Holy Spirit to hear your word rightly today. God, we pray that our hearts would be good soil. And that your word would come in and bear fruit, lasting fruit. God, we confess that we cannot change ourselves even slightly without the help of the Holy Spirit. So we pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst today. And we pray that as we consider this text and all that it has to say for us, that as this text seeks to glorify our Savior, God, may our hearts and our response bring glory to Christ and to you, our Heavenly Father. Father, we come with open hands, seeking to receive what only you can give. So be our help in these few moments. Please protect us from the evil one and help us have a focus on you and on your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, it is amazing in God's providence the timing of a sermon text. You know, when we planned, or should say Mark, you know, we, we talked about it and Philippians was where we wanted to go. We had no idea that today of all days we'd be preaching on this particular passage. And God knows our need, if you think about it. He knows our need and He knows it better than any of us ever will. He knew that we would need this passage, on this, this particular passage, on this particular day, and He knew it. From before the creation of the world. Not only did he know it, he planned for us to study this passage, this text today. Why? Because God loves us. Because God is more zealous for our joy than we are. Because God is more zealous for our holiness than we are. God is more zealous for our Christ likeness than we are. And God is more zealous for our conformity to Christ, and especially He is more zealous for our unity as a church than we are. And so God, in His kindness, planned for us to look at this passage today. It's a simple title, uh, drawn hopefully clearly from the text, Gaining the Mind of Christ, or Gaining the Mindset of Christ, because that is clearly what we are exhorted to do in verse 5. He says... Have this mindset or this mind among yourselves. Now the ESV, this is one of the few places where I will depart from the way the ESV translates it. Normally I am big time in favor of the ESV, but in this case it, it gives an alternate option. And I think the NASB says this and some others. Instead of saying, have this mind or mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, have this mindset among yourselves, which was also In Christ. Both are allowable. I lean towards the second one because the whole flavor of this text is look at Jesus and his attitude. Yes, we have that available to us because of the Holy Spirit, but we are here considering the example of Christ, this exhortation to gain the mindset, the attitude that Jesus himself had. So that, I think, is the best translation. But why would Paul go here? Why would Paul say, have the mindset of Christ? Again, as we read text, we always have to remember that every passage we come to is within a bigger context. And as we read in verses 1 through 4, we see that Paul is concerned about the unity of the church at Philippi. It's not like in brazen division or anything like that, but there are some things going on that has Paul concerned. And so he stresses here, he stresses later um, the, the, the importance of unity. That's why he says if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection or sympathy, talking to believers who have these things genuinely for one another, and he's stirring that up. Listen, think in your hearts, in your minds, beloved. on on any aspect, any bit of of, of love that you have for each other, any bit of of affection that you have for each other, any sympathy, think on this. He's he's wanting to bring it to mind. He says, that would complete my joy if you came together and were like-minded, if you had the same mind, the same love, full accord in one mind. And then verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourself. That's leading into verse 5. Verse 4: Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So that's what brings us to this exhortation to have the mind of Christ, the mindset that Christ had. And so as we think about gaining the mindset of Christ, I want us to consider just a very few things about Christ from this passage. Because again, this is the, the highest theological reflection that we can get. Paul is, is teaching us about our Savior in one of the most profound ways he can. And he does that in order to help us better love one another in the church. So as we consider these few things, we're going to make some application and trust that God is going to work through this. So first, as we seek to gain the mindset of Christ, we need to consider his rights as God. Consider his rights as God. That's Jesus. Look again at verse six. It says, who though he was in the form of God. Now there's been some debate amongst some trying to say, well, that's teaching us that Jesus is just similar to God, but he's not exactly God. And when you look at how this word form is used here, and then in verse seven, it, you, you cannot see it as indicating that Jesus is somehow other than God or less than God. It's saying he, he, was, he, was, he is God. He existed in the form of God. If you wanna know what God's like, you'd look at Jesus. That's the point of what he's saying. So we could say that he is very God of very God, drawing from some of the old creeds and confessions. He is in very nature God. And so when we think about the fact that Jesus is God and we're to consider his rights as God, let's think about what does it mean for him to be God? There's a whole lot we could say on this. So I'm not going to attempt to exhaust the possibilities here, but here's just a few thoughts when we think especially because he's saying he's in the form of God so that when you see Jesus, you see God, you see the fullness of God, here's several things. One, it means for Christ to be God that he displays the fullness of God in every way. He displays the fullness of God in every way. Listen to Colossians 1.15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And that's why I say he displays in himself the fullness of God in every way. You can't get a better understanding of who God is than by seeing God in Jesus because he is God. Not only does he display the fullness of God in every way, he contains the fullness of God. In every way, just in case someone was, well, okay, externally, he might can put on a good show. But what about at the essence of who he is? Colossians 119 clearly says that in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So in every conceivable way, this Jesus that we're considering is truly and fully God. Not only does he display and contain the fullness of God, we can go further than that. Scripture is clear that he is co-creator with the Father, sharing in all of God's creating work. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's a comprehensive statement there. Everything that has been made was made through Jesus. So there's nothing that has been created that is outside of Him. Share that with the Jehovah's Witness that you might have come to your door or the Mormon missionaries because they don't understand that Jesus was before creation. And a text like this clearly shows that before there was anything, He was there. And only God existed before creation. Colossians 1.16 says it, The same, similar, for by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. And and check out the categories here. He leaves nothing to chance. Visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And that for him actually adds a little, even more strength to our understanding that Jesus is truly and fully God. If We know God created all things for himself in his glory. So if Jesus, if, if Paul is saying that Jesus created all things, that all things were created for him, that for him can only be applied to someone who is himself truly and fully God. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 10 through 12, quoting Psalm 102 a psalm that's addressed exclusively to Yahweh, the one true God. It says this, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Again, that psalm that the writer of Hebrews is quoting is is in every way addressed to Yahweh, by his name, the divine covenant name Yahweh, as the only God. And the author of Hebrews is taking that text and applying it to Jesus, saying, this son, this Jesus laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, that the heavens are the work of Jesus's hands. The heavens will perish, but Jesus will remain. They will all wear it like a garment, but like a robe, Jesus will roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed. He is the same and his years have no end. Here's another way we see that Jesus is God. He shares equal glory with the Father. This one right here should settle it. Because we know, we instinctively know, that God shares his glory with no one. God alone shares. Is, is, is glorious in his essence, in his being. The Old Testament is clear. He says, My glory I will not give to another. The refrain of the psalm is not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. God shares his glory with no one. And we hear in John 17, 5, this prayer of Jesus in his high priestly prayer. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, and hear this, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Either Jesus is being brazenly rebellious or he's speaking the truth. And we know he is speaking the truth. He is talking to God and saying, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world created was, or the world existed he shares equal glory with the Father because He is God. And lastly, this one should go without saying, but He is the one true God revealed in the Old Testament Scriptures. And an interesting passage you might not have considered before, Jude 5, he says, I want to remind you, although you once knew it, that Jesus, or the Lord, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Whether you take that as Jesus or the Lord in the translation there, it's referring to Jesus. It's saying this Jesus is the one who delivered Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. So there's at least five lines of evidence showing we say that Jesus is God and that he has rights as God. It's clear. He is who the Bible says he is. He is truly, fully, equally God in every way. And so we need to consider that as God, he has every right to exercise his being God and his glory as the Father or the Spirit. But that leads us into the next point, verses 6 through 8. Look again, it says, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so when we think about considering his humility as a man, that's the second point. Consider his humility as a man. The first thing we see is that he did not exploit his status as God. He did not exploit his status as God. Again, Look at verse 6. It says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I wrestled with that for a long time. Um, as a new believer, he's God. He has every right to, to exercise his being God. Why would, he, why would he not do this? Well, first there's a translation issue. When we think of this being grasped, what that word is referring to is grasping after something for your own advantage over against other people. So we could say that what Paul is getting at here is that when he says that Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that he's, he's saying that Jesus didn't seek to use his status as God and exploit that to his own advantage to the exclusion of everyone else. Okay? I think that fits with what he's saying. He didn't use it for a wrongful advantage. His rights as God. So think on it this way. Jesus as God has every right to make much of his equality with God because he is God. He has every right to do that. But here's two reasons why he didn't. Why he didn't count equality with God a thing to be exploited to his own advantage. First, It was the only way to save and redeem his people. You think about this. We needed a human being to die in our place. We needed a human being to suffer the penalty that human beings deserve for human sin against God. But one mere human being wouldn't be enough, even if he was without sin. We need a human being who is also truly God at the same time uniting divinity and manhood in one person without any confusion, without any joining in a weird way together. He was truly God and truly man. He was not schizophrenic. He was not confused. But he was both God and man at the same time, 100% each. And that is how he could save his people. Why? Because to suffer the penalty for sin requires an infinite punishment. And only one who is himself infinite can exhaust an infinite punishment. And Jesus being truly and fully God could bear that penalty. And he could bear it in full. That's why when he hung on the cross, he said, it's finished. In a matter of hours, he exhausted for every person who will ever believe what everyone in hell will suffer forever without end. So it was the only way to save and redeem his people. Secondly, he did not count equality with God something to be wrongfully sought for his own advantage because he knew the glory that God had promised him on the other side of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. I think what we're talking about is contained in what the writer is saying. It says, Who for the joy that was set before him Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus saw beyond all that he was going to go through in his flesh. He knew what was on the other side. And this is one of the, the, the anchors of our Christian faith, that Jesus predicted his resurrection on the third day because he knew it was going to happen, and it did exactly as he said. He knew what was on the other side of his suffering. He knew the glory, he knew the exaltation, he knew the joy that was awaiting him. And so he could, he could in, in, in before his death and in his flesh, not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so we see here in verse 7 that in his humanity, he laid aside temporarily his, act, his use of some of his prerogatives, his rights as God. Look at verse seven, it says he emptied himself. Now there's some who have tried to argue that this emptying meant he actually stopped being God in some way, he, he, he got rid of some of his divinity and, and put, it, put it away until at a different time and that is not at all what this text is saying. Jesus never stopped being God even when he took on humanity or we should say the son did not stop being fully and truly God when he took on a human nature to himself. So he didn't get rid of anything. But by adding human nature, he limited his use willingly, not against his will, but willingly. He never ceased being truly and fully God. But in his humanity, he did limit his use of his divine power and prerogatives. He laid aside the use of his rights as God in order to live a truly human life with us. And for us. And so think on this. Again, Jesus had rights, prerogatives as God that he willingly chose to not make use of. And he did that for our good and God's glory. If he had not, we would not have salvation. I mean, again, ponder carefully, ponder deeply everything that he laid aside in order to reconcile us back to God. We are, in ourselves, rebellious creatures. We run from God. We don't run to God. We are God's enemies, the Bible says, in our sin. God. It's not just that we're God's enemies. God is our enemy. That's how evil our sin is. God hates sin, and he is adamantly opposed to sinners. And Jesus was under no obligation to pursue us because being fully God, he had every right to wipe us out. So under no obligation to pursue us and save us, he did. And that's still, as Paul says, the scandal of the gospel that the perfect son of God, very God of very God, the creator of the universe, the creator of every one of us, that he willingly limited himself in taking human form so that he would bring us back to God. Think of a a beautiful BMW, if you will, or even more Rolls Royce, a car of you know more money than any of us will ever be able to afford. Um, the lavishness of it, the beauty of it, and now imagine a brand new one, right off the lot, and then you take it mud bogging. Y'all know what mud bogging is, right? That's what we say down in South Georgia. You take the truck out and you go and you, 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 know, you come back and you don't recognize the truck. Imagine taking a Rolls Royce, a brand new one worth $200,000, $300,000, out into the mud. Now, it's going to get coated. Absolutely coated. But has anything essentially changed? No. By taking on the mud... The, the, the value and the worth of that very valuable car is just hidden. It's covered. But it never stopped being what it was. When Jesus took on humanity, he never stopped being God in any way. He, he still had rights as God to, to, as. what did he say on the cross or close to it? I could call 12 legions of angels right now if I wanted to. He had the right to do it. But he chose not to. And so, I guess the question for us is, in light of you know what Mark was sharing, um, you know, what are we willing to do in order to serve others for their good? What if the path laid before each one of us, the path that we know God is leading us on, is a path not of demanding, but of willingly laying aside. For the good of others and the glory of God. And now here's, here's where we have to be careful. Because, again, just take the mask issue, difference of opinion, strong differences of opinion. And that's okay. We don't, our, our tendency, at least my tendency, is to look at someone else and say, okay, here's what you need to do. But the emphasis of this text is not on what we, we look at other people and expect from them. It's putting the emphasis solely on our own hearts and our own attitudes. That's why we say gain the mindset, the attitude of Christ. It's not, the emphasis here is not demanding, is not on our demanding of others, how they should best serve us, but of our determining in light of Christ's example, how we can best serve others. And so just again, the one issue, take whatever position you are and from yourself and in your position, as convinced as you may be in it, ask yourself the question, how can I, in light of this text, best serve others for their good? And again, I'm not gonna attempt to answer that for you. But your own conscience before the Lord in submission to the Word, I trust God will be faithful. So we see that he laid aside his his use of these rights. He never stopped having the right to them, but he laid aside, he covered they were hidden for a while, so we see that he emptied himself, secondly, he became a slave, and thinking of this as god's slave, I mean a slave is absolutely at the the will and authority of his Master, Jesus came to do the will of God and nothing else. He was bound to his Father's will. He embraced this task with wholehearted conviction and to such a degree that doing the will of God was the very sustenance by which he lived. John 4.34, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish His work. So, as God's slave, Jesus served God's people in unexpected and even shocking ways. Think of when he washed the disciples' feet. They didn't know what to do with that. Here is the king of the universe, the creator, taking the most abased role he could take washing these dirty, sweaty, filthy, stinky feet. It was unexpected and it was shocking to them. But we're going to have the mind of Christ. If we're going to have the attitude towards one another that Christ had, we need to think, Lord, how can I go out of my way to serve and love my brothers and sisters? Let's consider in light of this passage everything that Jesus endured. And he did that so he could strengthen us. Here's the thing. He did it so he could strengthen us to love and serve one another as he commands That's the blessing of the New Covenant. It's not just go and do this. It's if the Bible, if Jesus or the apostles tell us to do something, we have the promise of power to do it. God doesn't say do it in your own strength. He says, if I command you, I will empower you in everything I command. Not only did Jesus become a slave, moving on, he became a man. It says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He humbled himself in a life of obedience And he obeyed unto death on a cross. He obeyed unto death on a cross, which we have already discussed. Let's lastly consider his exaltation as Lord, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why is Jesus highly exalted? It's a good question to ask. The text answers it for us. He's highly exalted because of his obedience. He is highly exalted because of his obedience. It's the reward for his humility. Humility that was expressed in absolute and unflinching obedience to God, even unto the cruelest of deaths. He is worthy of all praise because he is Yahweh, the only true God. Follow the flow here. God is highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What is that name? Because he's, he's exalted him up because Christ obeyed. How does he how does he show that exaltation? What is it expressed in? It's expressed in giving Jesus a name that's above every other name. And we might be confused when we look at verse 10: so that at the name of Jesus every nation bow. Is he talking about specifically the name Jesus? Or is that name tied to Jesus, but is not the name Jesus, if you're following? Because there was a, Jesus was a common name. It's the equivalent of Joshua. It was a common name. So there's, in that sense, there's nothing special about the name of Jesus. Because it was a common name that people had. Hold your place here. Look at Isaiah chapter 45. Turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 45. Paul knew the Old Testament well, and he makes use of this passage in Isaiah 45 to help us truly understand just how significant this exaltation of Christ is. Isaiah 45, look at verses 22 through 25. This is Yahweh the Lord speaking. He says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Or, according to the Septuagint, every tongue shall confess to God. Only in Yahweh it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In Yahweh... All the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Now it's clear from that text that there is salvation to be had only in the one true God, the God of Israel who's revealed himself to be called Yahweh. And a day is coming, he says, when all humanity is going to stand before him and give an account. Every person will stand before him, bow the knee, and make a confession that he is God. And he is God alone. Philippians chapter 2 is drawing from this text, but applying it in a very, very powerful way. So if you want to flip back to Philippians, let's see what Paul does here. Again, Isaiah. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess to God. Quoting from the Greek Septuagint there. And what does Paul say? At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we've got the name that is above every name. What is the name that has been bestowed on this God-man Jesus? I believe is referring to the name Yahweh. Jesus is Lord is one of the most powerful confessions in all the New Testament of the deity of Jesus Christ. That he is, as we've said, very God of very God. And so here Paul is taking from Isaiah and saying, this time is coming when when everyone, will God's calling the nations to turn to him and be saved and that a day is coming when they will all have to to stand before him and bow and confess. And So what, what is Paul doing? He is helping us see that the way that happens is when we exalt the name of Jesus. When we say Jesus is Lord, We are saying he is the one true God and he is the only way that you can be saved and brought back to the one true God and in no other way. So Paul understands the Old Testament that there is salvation for the nations and now that Christ has come, he is the means by which that salvation goes out to the nations. And so we have an option before us we will either bow in this life willingly, joyfully, embracing Christ as Lord, as God, as Savior, or we will be forced to bow at that final day. And if we wait until then, it will be too late. It's the emphasis of Scripture. Paul is not saying that one day everybody is going to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. But everybody will bow and they will acknowledge that he is who Christians have been testifying that he is this whole time. What the scriptures have been testifying. Everyone will be made to acknowledge that. Even those who will be heading into eternal punishment. His exaltation, lastly, his exaltation glorifies the Father says all of this will happen. This glorifying of Jesus, this making much of Jesus, this exaltation of Jesus to where the whole world bows to him, it'll be to the glory of the Father. It'll be to the glory of the Father. And we know again that all that God does, he does for the exaltation of his own glory. And when Jesus is confessed as Lord, the Father is supremely glorified. God is glorified on this earth when sinners bow their knees and confess Jesus is Lord and again, On that final day, the Father will be glorified when Jesus stands as righteous judge over everyone. And so as we think through how we can best consider others more significant than ourselves, the way we do that is not by looking inwardly but looking outwardly to Christ, who is very God of very God, but who humbled himself by taking humanity to himself to live and die for us and for the glory of of God. Taking the words of the writer of Hebrews, let's fix our eyes on Jesus and let us together as a church, together strive to love and serve one another, to consider one another as more significant than ourselves, to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. That is exactly what Jesus did. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the certainty of his promise of grace, we must daily strive to do likewise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a text you have given us to consider. It is powerful in so many ways. God, we realize that we are not adequate to the task of showing love to one another. We need your help. And it is the very thing we need is what you delight to give. You gave the Holy Spirit to your church to empower us and strengthen us and guide us and help us To do all that you have commanded us to do. Lord, we live in a weird time. In a very weird time. But we know that you are in absolute sovereign control over it. And Father, we just pray that your church here at North Avenue, that we would glorify your name. God, even while at times there may be differences of opinion on things, Lord, we remain united in the gospel. In this hope. In this Jesus And so help us, Lord, to love and serve one another as you would have us do. Lord, may the love that we have for one another be a witness to the world around us. That they would see the love that we have for one another and that they would be drawn to that, drawn to it, inquisitive about it. That we might be able to share the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Um, and so I guess as we do this, Ian will will play, and are we going to that now? We're going. All right, yeah, Ian's going to have some music, so again, just, you know, spend some time praying if you want before you come up, um, and remember, again, this this table that we partake of, uh, this is a, a special gift that God has given to his people. Um, if you are not a believer here today, um, you know... Don't partake of this. this. There's nothing magical about the Lord's Supper. There's nothing mystical about it in terms of it conveying salvation in any way. This is a celebration. It's a time of remembrance, a time of celebration. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we partake of this, not just remembering the work that he did to bring our salvation, but anticipating the day when he comes back to bring us to be with him forever. This is a, a, but a foretaste of the joy and the hope that we will have and the, 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 the happiness and the life that we will experience in the presence of Jesus. So as we go before this, you know, examine your heart. Um, is there sin in your life that you are just refusing to deal with? You know, take now to confess that sin. Um, let's spend some time in prayer and then come and partake as the Lord leads.